It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. This is Lighthouse Faith Podcast, moving forward in truth and love. I'm Lauren Green, Chief Religion Correspondent for Fox News Channel and author of the book, Lighthouse Faith. Uh, Dr. Vody Bauckham um, has got to be one of the, the most controversial theologians alive today, and not because he's he has radical views on the Bible or Christianity, but because he has probably the most orthodox views of the authority of the Bible, and especially on the issue of race and social justice. Now, before I go uh, any further, it must be said that Vody Bauckham is black, African-American to be exact, and that's why his views are troubling to a lot of people, because he doesn't fit the narrative of the current cultural moment. Most of the controversy surrounding him is in his criticism of critical race theory and critical social justice, two ideologies that are making their way through the political landscape and the religious landscape as well, particularly among evangelicals. Dr. Bauckham believes these movements, which have gained considerable traction in the last few years, and especially in the last year, um, they really are the enemies of the Bible. Um, well, and we'll explain that a little bit more. It's a word of warning, though, and I have to say this. Dr. Bauckham is going to offend you. Now, if you believe systemic racism is rampant in America, that police are targeting young black men, and that white privilege and white Christian nationalism are at the root of why this country is in turmoil, then Bauckham is your worst enemy. His new book um, on all these issues uh, is a warning to pastors and pundits of what's ahead for the church. And the book is called Fault Lines, the Social Justice Movement and Evangelicalism's Looming Catastrophe. And Dr. Bauckham is the Dean of Theology at African Christian University in Lusaka, Zambia, although he was born and educated here in America, and he joins me now. Welcome, Dr. Bauckham. Well, thank you very much for having me. I, I must say I was intimidated by that introduction. I was wondering who this <laughs> scary person was that you were. <laughs> well, I say this because, um, I, you know, a lot of people, you know, before the racial issues really came to the forefront, a lot of people were, you know, you, really loving your talk about, you know, the, the Bible and the authority of the Bible and yes. all of that. When yes. you started talking about race and you did not fill the narrative of what, like I say, this current cultural moment is, then you really started to step on toes. Yeah. Uh, one guy on Twitter, uh, there's a minister on Twitter and, and I've met him in passing a few times and he's on the other side of this issue. And he said um, not too long ago that, you know, hey, I, I met Vody Bauckham several years ago and he was the nicest guy and he came and sat down with me, you know, but I'm so concerned about his current trajectory. And I'm going, OK, as a as a person, I haven't changed. I've been talking about these issues for a decade and a half. Mm -hmm. um, but because of this current cultural moment, all of a sudden he's acting as though, um you know, my, my, my character somehow has right. has become different th than it was before. And I'm, I guess the, the, the presumption is I'm not a nice guy anymore. 
So, yeah, I I don't know what to do with that. (laughs) We don't we don't we can't sell we can't separate people's ideas from the person. And and this is one of the problems, too, in America. It's like it's like if you're if you've lied once, you're now a liar. I mean, if you you were if you, you know, I mean, I'm not saying you're a liar. I'm just saying is that people kind of just don't separate ideas from the person. They don't separate sin from the person. Unless you're on the left. If you're yeah. on if you're on the left, grace abounds. Um, <laughs> but, but if if you're if you're on the right, uh, not so much. Well, let's get to the definitions because one of the things that people may not understand what these two terms are, um, because they're hearing them more and more and more now. Um, the critical race theory and critical social justice. What is critical race theory? Well, let, let me just sort of back up and talk about that term, critical. Mm-hmm. Um, this this term critical has been used in um, academic circles for a long time. Um, there's critical pedagogy, critical uh, race theory, critical whiteness studies, and so on and so forth. And it has its roots in the Frankfurt School. It, it has its roots in this neo-Marxist movement of the 1930s, 40s, 50s, um, and then 60s, really, of the Frankfurt School. Yeah. And so that that term, when you hear critical, you need to understand that that means that whatever is coming after that is looking at the world through a lens that assumes that power dynamics are the only way that we can understand human relationships Mm -hmm. and that specifically there is an oppressor oppressed dynamic and critical. We need to. We need to criticize. We need to critique that. We need to problematize that so that we can discover where those power dynamics are being exercised and then root them out and overthrow them. Okay. So it's very important that when people hear, because I'm hearing a lot of people talk about, you know, critical race theory and saying, no, 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 it's just about, you know, being honest about racism and so on and so forth. And if you, if you know, the, the literature, if you know where this comes from, um, then you understand that that first word is a dead giveaway, that this is a Marxist endeavor. Um, it, it, critical, critical race theory comes out of critical legal studies. Um, again, there's that word again, uh, critical legal studies in the 1970s mainly. Um, and then it really came to shape in the 1980s um, with a couple of Harvard law professors, mainly, um, who sort of, you know, uh, po- you know, uh, popularized it, Derek Bell and his mentee, uh, Kimberly Crenshaw. Um, and so it, it, it is based on the ideas of neo-Marxism, based on the ideas and the assumptions of the oppressor-oppressed dynamic. And because of those assumptions, it sees America in a certain way, it sees the law in a certain way, and it sees people in a certain way. Mm-hmm. So, the, 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 so basically critical race theory, and this is what you quote, says that, that racism is ingrained in the fabric and the system of American society. That's, that's, that's kind of what we're looking at here. And, it, and it's yeah. a power move. That's one of the main premises. And this is why the 1619 Project, a lot of people never understood why the 1619 Project was such a big deal, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the 1619 Project is about changing the goalpost and saying America, the, the essence of what America is, is not the Declaration of Independence and those lofty ideals. Mm-hmm. It, it is not 
you know, the the ratification of our Constitution. So it's not 1776. It's not 1787. It's 1619, which um, it's argued is 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 when the first black slaves came to America. Mm -hmm. And the reason that we want to move it back to 1619 is because you move back to 1619, then you don't have those lofty ideals. And you can argue that America is essentially at its core rooted in racism and injustice. So you, you're basically supplanting the foundations, the founding father, the founding documents that we all know and we all learned about yeah. With this what happened in 1619. Absolutely. And 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 essentially arguing that those things that came later are not the real America. Um, and it's amazing the way people are, are looking and talking about this. Again, this is this first premise of critical race theory. There's a lot of premises. I see four main premises. But the first premise is, as you said, racism is normal um, and specifically it's systemic um, in America. It is America's original sin. And that's not my words, right? I mean, you hear this, there was a book, um, America's Original Sin by Jim Wallace, um, who's one of the purveyors of these ideals of, yeah. you know, critical he's, race theory. He's a pastor, right? Jim Wallace is yes. a pastor. Yes. Okay. Um, Ibram X. Kendi proposed an amendment, an anti-racist amendment to the Constitution. Um, and he says the first line of it is to fix the original sin of racism. Right. Mm -hmm. So th this is seen as the uh, America's original sin. It is the defining characteristic of America. And so this is why another of, you know, the, the most popular voices in this regard, Robin D'Angelo. Robin D'Angelo says that when you see, you know, uh, something occurring in these kind of power dynamics, you don't ask whether racism occurred. Mm -hmm. You ask how. Ah. We, we assume that racism occurred. And so when you see a police shooting or when you see whatever, the assumption is that racism is at play here. And we just need to dig into this. Mm -hmm. Right. Critical. It's assumed. It's assumed. Yes. Yes. And this is this is where the critical part comes in. We just need to dig into this and discover why. So the ultimate way that this works itself out is in disparities. So if there are disparities, and by the way, there always are disparities. There's never been a culture in the history of the world that didn't have disparities between people groups. It is inconceivable that you would have an equal distribution of abilities and of, you know, whatever uh, among various people groups in a given society. It's completely inconceivable because we're not widgets, right? right and right. so the assumption is if there are disparities, these disparities are like they're, they're prima facie evidence of systemic racism. Mm -hmm. And if you try to explain them in another way, again, I'll go back to D'Angelo and her book, Right Fragility. She talks about a lot of different kinds of racism. But one of the kinds of racism she talks about is aversive racism. Now, aversive racism happens when you look at a disparity and try to explain that disparity by anything other than racism. And that's that, and that's wrong. That's that destroys their narrative if you try Ex to look at anything. Absolutely. So you, but do you admit, though, that there are growing ethnic tensions and that it's a problem? 
Absolutely. But you say it's not the main problem. So what is? Well, there, 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 there are several things, but these growing ethnic tensions are coming from somewhere. These, these, these ideologies, these worldviews that lay at the core of these ethnic tensions are the greater issue. And so that's why I'm writing about things like critical race theory and critical social justice and, you know, their roots in a Marxist ideology and worldview, because ultimately this is a worldview battle. Now it's using this new front, right? Because America's Americans are sensitive about a number of things, but what, what we're most sensitive about is race. We, we don't, the last thing you want to be called is a racist. Right. We, rec- we recognize, you know, uh, you know, our history and our past. And unlike most of the cultures in the world, um, we're actually repentant about that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the things that's interesting is people talk about America and our history with slavery and, and, and so on and so forth. You know, the unique thing about the United States is not that we had slavery because every culture in the history of the world had yeah. slavery. The unique thing about us is that we fought a war to end it when most of the world was still not accepting a moral argument against slavery. Mm. And so here we are, this new country, right? And within 90 years of the Declaration and within 80 years of the ratification of our Constitution, we end slavery. But I'll go you one better. The 13th Amendment in slavery, right? Mm-hmm. The first 10 came with the Constitution. The Bill of Rights came with the Constitution, which means the third time that we amended the Constitution, we ended slavery. That's remarkable. During an era where nobody else in the world, except you know our cousins in England, right, were, right. Were, were making a moral argument against slavery, and England was having to use its navy to force people to end slavery. And it they was because of Christian views that they absolutely slavery. Absolutely. Now, they, they forget about that. We're talking absolutely. about um, William Wilberforce, you know, absolutely. really making making the found making the foundation of Christianity, making the argument against uh, slavery a uh, Christian base, which nullifies the argument that Christianity and the Bible actually affirmed slavery, which it did not, uh, which it does not. Um, yes. But you, but the, but but you believe that the current social justice is incompatible with biblical Christianity. And this is really the crux of your book. Why is it incompatible with Christianity and the biblical worldview? Well, for a number of reasons. First of all, um, social justice is clearly defined, right? Um, You know, you can go to the Oxford Dictionary, the English language, and a number of other places, and you look up social justice, and social justice is redistributive justice. Social justice is not about the outworking of biblical justice within the social realm. Social justice is rooted in these ideas of equity, not equality, right? Equity. Equality is about equal opportunities. Equity is about equal outcomes. So social justice is rooted in the same uh, critical theory concepts that say disparities are injustices. And we need to redistribute, um, you know, resources, opportunities, whatever, so that we get equitable outcomes among people. And that's just that in itself is antithetical to the biblical model. I mean, think about the think about the parable of the talents. 
right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when Jesus doesn't come, you know, the, the, and say that at the end, you know, the owner comes to the guy with the one talent who buried it. And he said, well, we need equity here. So you need to get, no, he takes it from him and gives it to the guy with the most. That is the absolute opposite of what we've come to believe justice is supposed to be about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's take a break right now on the Lighthouse Faith podcast, because I want to, you know, go on to the next big subject, which is basically the idea of racism. Um, and we're talking with uh, Dr. Vody Bacham, and we'll be right back on Lighthouse Faith podcast. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com. Okay, we're back on Lighthouse Faith Podcast talking about uh, talking with Dr. Vody Bakum, who wrote a book called Fault Lines, The Social Justice Movement and Evangelicalism's Looming Catastrophe. It's basically about how the current kind of, you know, cultural moment of critical race theory is really incompatible with Christianity and the biblical worldview. And uh, would you go so far, Dr. Bakum, as to say that that critical race theory is really kind of evil or would you not go that far? Um, yeah, well, I... I I, I don't say that. Um, I haven't. <laughs> I haven't said that. Um, you know, I, I I wouldn't fault anyone for 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 saying that. I believe it. I believe it is it is sinister. Um, you know, again, we we I, we talked about that first premise, right? That racism mm-hmm. is normal. The second premise is you know the idea of convergence theory, mm-hmm. um, and the idea is that white people are incapable of righteous actions in the area of race unless their interests converge with that of minorities. And so not only do we have original sin, but we have total depravity, right? So they're basically saying that, you know, the original sin is racism. It's not yes. that um, Eve disobeyed God in the garden, right. you know, that we've put ourselves in the place of God. The original sin is, is, is racism. And that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not the Bible's narrative. Yeah. And the other thing is that this narrative is... You know, you make an incredible, you make an important point because this narrative is not trying to explain humanity. This narrative is trying to explain America, right? Mm. And again, it goes back to the the the, the Marxist and neo Marxist views about the relationships between people. And there was a very important Marxist thinker. Uh, named Antonio Gramsci. He was an Italian Marxist in the 1920s and 30s. And he's the one who gives us the idea of hegemony, of cultural hegemony. And cultural hegemony is like the worldview in a given culture. And from the Marxist perspective, there is no absolute truth, right? There's no absolute right and wrong. And critical race theory agrees with this, um, you know, that, that, that there is no objective truth. And this is why narrative becomes so important, right? The narratives are the oppressed. So, and again, it's not biblical. biblical exactly. There is, it's, it's you know, if if it's you say not. there's no objective truth, it means it's, you've just discounted the authority of the Bible. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so the idea of hegemony is not that there's absolute truth in a given culture, but whatever a culture assumes to be true, they assume it to be true because the oppressors have mm. dictated the hegemony. And so mm. this is why, I don't know if you remember several months ago, there was this document that came from the Smithsonian, the, the Museum of African-American History or whatever. 
And this document talked about whiteness and the elements of whiteness. And there were things on this document like, um, you know, being on time and the Protestant work ethic and the <laughs> nuclear family and, you know, so on and so forth. I mean, it was it it would have been comical if this hadn't been real. I mean, it was like something uh, from the Babylon Bee, you know, but <laughs> they were referring to these things as white. And if you don't understand the concept of hegemony, then you don't get where these people are coming from. And you think it's just absolutely absurd. But if you understand the concept of hegemony, then you understand that what they were saying in that document and what critical race theory is saying is that those things we value in American culture are not objectively true. Mm -hmm. They're just the result of the hegemonic power of the oppressor. And what we need to do is we need to come against this hegemonic power. And we need to replace this hegemonic power. And the way that we find alternative truth is through alternative ways of knowing and specifically through narrative. So that's why we talk about elevating black voices. Mm -hmm. We need to listen to the voice of the oppressed because the oppressed have access to insight that the oppressor doesn't have. Again, this is another one of the premises of critical race theory, and it's completely antithetical to biblical truth. God is no respecter of persons, and our truth doesn't come horizontally. Our truth comes vertically. Mm -hmm. we, we are so wrapped up in race, though. I mean, this is one of the things that the Pew survey always brings out, is that race is a, the number one predictor of how you will vote in a, a political election, and that religion is a very distant number two. So this is the whole political system is anti, you know, you, it proves that we cannot get out of this identity of race. You know? Well, it proves that there are people who've mastered the exploitation mm -hmm. of race. Um, it, it proves that, you know, the, the, the political parties and uh, political candidates have learned how to um, really emphasize that and have learned how to really exploit that. But is um, race important though? Because, you know, one of the things that I, you know, what I kind of get a little upset with is somebody says to me, I don't see color, I just see people. It's like, what do you mean by that? Because if you don't see my color, you don't see a whole history. You don't see the, you know, the paths that my people went through to get to bring, to be here today. I mean, yeah. there, there's an issue there though. Absolutely. And I, and I, I think what's going on there is there are two things. On the one hand, when people talk about colorblindness and the ideal of colorblindness, that ideal is rooted in something when they usually go back to Dr. King's speech, right? Mm -hmm. um, content of our character, not the color of our skin. And so what people are trying to say is, I'm, I'm looking at the content of your character. But you're absolutely right in that the danger, um, if we're not careful, is that we're also saying, I don't believe that God was intending to do anything in terms of revealing his glory through the diversity that he's put in humanity. Mm -hmm. And that is absolutely not true. Um, that diversity that he's put in humanity is incredibly important. And it's important because it reveals God's glory. We, we cannot comprehend how glorious God is. So just like there are multiple shades and types of 
grass and flowers and so on and so forth. And those things reveal God's majesty, beauty, and glory. The same is true in human diversity as well. So I think we need to sort of keep both of those things in mind that on the one hand, we absolutely want to pursue colorblindness in terms of content of character versus color of skin. But on the other hand, we want to be careful that we're not negating, as you said, um, you know, people's uh, d- distinctions and, and, and the things that make them unique and the things that make them reflect this diverse glory of God and humanity. Well, this is one of the things that critical race theory does not seem to be able to do because it does not look at the content of character. It is looking at critical, looking critical at white people. That yes. seems to be the sin of being white. And be, I watched a movie the other day. Um, and I don't even know if I should say the name of the movie because I just, it was going okay until I realized at the end that they base, I was very upset of, of who died at the end. That was, you know, that's always like, like, why did I watch this movie and knowing that this, I thought he was going to, because he's the star of the movie. But what I realized is that um, it's, it's so typical of today's sort of cultural moment in that the number one enemy of today are white heterosexual males. And this is like the number one enemy. And so not only did the main character who uh, is a white heterosexual male die, um, but the bad characters, the bad, you know, male characters who were also white, you know, heterosexual male, you know, died in a, in a blaze of fire. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like it wasn't just they died. They had to go out, you know, in a blaze of fire. Exactly. You know, my, my wife and I, um, we, we have certain things that we like to watch together and keep up with and whatnot. And we, we love, you know, like police dramas and, you know, yeah. things like that. Police dramas and medical dramas. Like we love those. Right. 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 And, you know, we there is a distinct line that can be drawn pre-George Floyd and post-George Floyd. Mm-hmm. And now all of the police dramas are wokey McWokeface. I mean, <laughs> it is just, you know, it is just awful. And there are things that we just used to enjoy that we can't even watch anymore yeah. because it's sickening the way that they've now completely flipped, you know, the, the agenda on its head. And they, I mean, the, the police, you know, just, just, just can't do enough, you know, self-flagellation, um, you know, in, in these various programs and whatnot. And so you're right. We, we are obsessed with this. This obsession is growing, but I believe that we're going to hit a wall uh, and that we're already hitting a wall. But you say, I want to say this because we don't talk about this idea of racism, and this is where people really do get upset with you. You know, you say that there's there's no systemic racism in America. Right. And and you and I know both that if you've been called the N-word several times. Yes. um, I have been too. Um, yeah. you, you, but you say that it's, you know, this, there's, there's no systemic racism. There's no sense of like this, this sort of white supremacy, white privilege um, is seen as sort of blaming. If you don't agree with that, you're blaming the victim. So yes. what is you say there's no systemic racism in America? Is that true? No. I mean, it is true because systemic racism is a concept that's rooted in critical race theory. So systemic racism is a way of explaining disparities, 
Mm-hmm. And so essentially you look at disparities, you look at incarceration rates, graduation rates, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And you say, well, there's these disparities between black people and white people. And the answer to that is systemic racism. Right. Mm-hmm. And so. So they never uh, look at any other reason. No. If you do look at other reasons, again, that's aversive racism. Because you're now blaming the victim. But just think about that, though, Lauren. Blaming the victim. What am I a victim of? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm a victim of the hegemonic oppression, right? Mm-hmm. In this, and Again, it all goes back to critical theory and critical race theory. It all goes back to these neo-Marxist ideas and ideologies. And so... There is racism. By the way, here's my problem with the whole uh, systemic racism move. From a biblical perspective, racism is about partiality. Racism is about the, the, the favoring of a group of people or the disfavoring of a group of people based on particular characteristics of that group. Mm-hmm. And it's sinful, right? Right. But it's a sin in the heart of man. Systemic racism is not a sin in the heart of man. So you can have racism without a racist. And now all of a sudden our job is to change and fix systems as opposed to changing hearts through the power of the gospel. And we actually remove the one thing that can actually deal with racism in favor of another thing that never will. Because you actually call this CRT basically an alternative religion. This is not yes. just a political movement. This is a religion. Yes, it, it is, and I and I have a whole chapter, you know, on on that. Um, and I'm not the I'm not the only one, you know, to talk about this. Uh, even even um, atheists like you know uh, John McWhorter and you know um, I just lost his name, the madness of Andrew Murray, mm-hmm. um, and others who are not particularly religious people. Um, have have referred to this as a religion because it has all of the elements of a religion. It has its own cosmology. It has its own theology. I mean, it it, it has you know its its own doctrine and its priests and its saints and its liturgy. Um, it, I mean, it's it's got all these things. And again, like I said, I wrote a whole chapter on just the religious aspects of this. But the problem is, this religion offers zero hope. There is no forgiveness in this religion, this religion of anti-racism, you know, if you will, this religion of critical social justice. There is absolutely no hope, only perpetual penance. And so white people are guilty and need to be forgiven, but never will be fully. And black people are innocent, oppressed people who suddenly don't need to be forgiven. Yeah, find that somewhere in in the gospel, right? (laughs) And what we have is white people who continually walk around on eggshells because they know that the minute they slip up and do or say anything that a black person considers a microaggression, it's not just that they're going to get their hands slapped or that they're going to be called on it. It's that people are going to say, aha, I knew it. I, I knew you were still a racist. I knew that it was still in there. And you go right back to square one again. And we can't live like this. You know, the, one of the um, chapters in your book probably will blow a lot of people away in terms of you talk about seeking true justice and you give some examples. Um, 
that basically counters the narrative that police are targeting black males and they are shooting them at incredible rates. Yeah. But the numbers just don't add up. No, they don't. That's, that's, I mean, that may be my favorite chapter, that one and the last one, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I really, I really enjoyed um, writing that chapter um, because it, it just, it gave me an opportunity to engage in something that I can do in a book that you generally don't get to do in a conversation, right? Right. right. Pe- people will dismiss you out of hand if you start talking about those things that I'm talking about in that chapter um, in a conversation. Um, but when you see them laid out, um, you know, logically like that in a chapter in a book, um, you you kind of got to deal with them. And yeah. so one of the things I do, for example, is I go through all, not all, I go through several of the most prominent um, killings of, of black people by police um, and demonstrate how in every instance, at least one and usually more white people have died in the exact same way, if not worse. You say in your book, 11 unarmed white men were shot in 187 days and no media said unarmed white men. No. No. I mean, 11 were shot Yeah. in probably a little more than half a year. And yeah. nobody, nobody mentioned them. Yeah, that phrase, unarmed white man... Um, it, 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 it just doesn't exist. And in the same period, um, unarmed black man is, is mentioned, you know, I don't, I don't know how many times, um, in that same period when a fraction of the number of, of, of black men were killed, but see that, that, that just goes to show you, this is a narrative that we're putting forth that just has nothing to do with truth. It has nothing to do with facts. It has nothing to do with reality. We just, you know, came out of the George Floyd uh, trial, um, uh, Officer Chauvin's trial. And what's interesting about that is he was charged with a boatload of stuff, but he was not charged with a hate crime. Why? Because there was no evidence that he did what he did because George Floyd was black. None. And yet, and yet, if you listen to the way people talk about what happened, that we know for a fact, this was the smoking gun, you know, mm-hmm. now we got them on tape. We know that they're doing this every day to black man. Now we got them on tape. Now we have proof. No, we don't. There's no proof that that happened to him because he was black. In 2016, the same thing happened to Tony Tempa in Dallas, Texas. Instead of nine minutes on his neck and back, there was 14 minutes on his neck and back. And the difference, of course, is that the officers in Dallas were not dismissed. Tempest family didn't get $27 million because he's white. He was white. And nobody, and so no, com- nobody complained. Nobody complained. Nobody knows his name. Those officers are still on the job. They've never been on trial. They wouldn't even release the tape, I believe, for a year. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and again, if, if, if the Floyd case proves racism against black men, what does the Tempa case prove? You, you know, know what you give you give some actual numbers though. You 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 cite the Harvard economist Roland G. Fryer. He a study. He said he found no racial difference in either the raw data or when contextual factors are taken into account. Yes, that 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 black men are being targeted by policemen, uh, police officers. What are the actual statistics of the number of 
black men um, you know, shot by police as opposed to white men? Well, generally in a given year, there are a thousand people who are killed by police. Mm-hmm. Um, and usually roughly half of those are, are, are white. So, uh, and about a quarter of those are black. So somewhere around, you know, 250 of them being black and somewhere around 500 or so of them being white. And the other um, 500 or what are other races or? Uh, yeah. Other, other, other races or, you know, undetermined or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when it comes to unarmed, um, what's, what's, what's alarming is, when man on the street interviews are done with people about the number of unarmed black men who are killed every year by the police, mm-hmm. the the answer people give is usually somewhere in the hundreds when generally there's around 10, 10 to 15 um, is the number. And there's usually twice as many um, white uh, unarmed people who are killed by police as there are black unarmed people who are killed by police. Um, and this is where it gets interesting because then people want to go, yes, but black people are only 12 percent of the population. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, statistically, it's, it's, dispropor- it's disproportionate statistically. And one of the things that I do in the book to just demonstrate how ridiculous this is, is I talk about the difference between police killings of men versus women. OK, the, the Breonna Taylor, though, the, that's the situation. That's one of those that we keep hearing about. But if you even read the attorney general, the Kentucky attorney general's report yes. on this, yes, then it's a whole different narrative than what you hear on the news shows. Yes. This blew my mind, actually. Yes. Yes, it is. Um, you're talking about that section where I give um, the facts compared to what people reported right. even after the facts came out. Yeah. Right. Even after the facts came out, people and were still- And the Attorney General of yeah. Kentucky, by the way, is black. So we have to yeah. start with that. Well, premise. but you got to remember, though, he, he's skin folk, but not kin folk. Okay. Right? <laughs> you know? Okay, that, yeah. That was my favorite. That yeah. was just my absolute favorite, you know? Yeah, that was, that's um, pretty good, yeah. Yeah, and it's, it, it's so familiar, isn't it? And this is what people do, right? You, you can't discount people's stories, Okay, fine. Here's the black attorney general uh, of Kentucky. And what do we do? We discount his story because he's a Republican and because he said the wrong thing. Now, all of a sudden, he's not really black. And, you know, this is something I I mean, I don't I I don't even I, I don't even get surprised by it anymore. I don't get upset by it anymore, um, because ultimately what I've realized is this is people's admission that they don't have an argument. This is their admission that they don't have anything else to say about what we're dealing with here. Right. This is argument ad hominem. This is, this is when you're admitting that you've lost the argument and now, you know, you just start calling names. Um, And I, you know, I, I wrote this book and I deal with these issues because I love the body of Christ I love the people of God. I love my country. And I believe that there is a real threat. And I felt like as as a a black man, you know, I was in a unique position to say some things about this. Absolutely. In a way that wouldn't necessarily be heard at all um, if I were not a black man. Now, there are people who dismiss it still. I mean, that's why I started with those first two chapters. 
Well, when um, you talk about your history, I mean, you were definitely a black man. I, I mean, I couldn't even, <laughs> I, I grew up in Minnesota, you know, it's not quite the same. It was, you know, just kind of a nuclear family and hey guys, how you doing? And yeah. that kind of thing. But I mean, you've got a real story and you have credibility here and which is why I think it's important for you when you bring out the issue of Breonna Taylor. And I, I keep going back to this because I think people will get a different understanding of what's happening when you look at the Breonna Taylor situation. One of the things that really just broke my heart was that you compare Breonna Taylor in March of 2020 to 12-year-old Sierra Meyer in January yes. of 2016. Yes. Now, you don't know Sierra Meyer's name. You don't even know who she is. She was 12 yes. years old and she was shot and killed by police when the police were serving eviction notice on her father who pulled a gun out, but police fired first. Yes. They were white. We yes. don't hear about them. Yes. In the Breonna Taylor situation, first of all, she was not in bed, sleeping in her bed. She was in the hallway standing next to her boyfriend who fired first. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And again, you know, little Sierra is 12 years old. She's killed by the cop. Can you imagine if that girl had been black? Yeah. I mean, wow. But again, what does this say about who we're becoming as a people when a 12-year-old girl or the seven-year-old girl who was recently shot and killed in, in, in the, the drive-thru? You know, and uh, in, in, in the uh, I guess I think it was the McDonald's drive through or something mm -hmm, like that. Mm -hmm. Again, when these things happen and the outcry is minimal, um, it just it just speaks volume. And, and what it says is we have a narrative that we want to advance. And, and why do we want to advance it? And, and here's what people don't want to talk about. We want to advance it because we want power. You right. see, this is all about power. Remember, critical, right? Critical theory, um, oppressors and oppressed. There are people with power and people without power. What critical theory wants to do is come in and not just analyze that, but problematize that and, you, you know, in, have a revolutionary over, overthrow of that. And so we, we want positions of power to go from those people who are now the oppressor class and go to the people who are now the oppressed class. And we're seeing it now. We're seeing it as institutions are bending over backwards to try to hire, you know, more black people. And, well, you know, these are good things, though. I mean, you want to hire more, you know, good black people. You want to be more fair about your hiring practice. Right. I mean, that's the way black people got kind of working. There's a difference. There's a difference. But actually, that's not the case. Even back in Jim Crow, even back in the 1940s, um, blacks had higher marriage rates and often higher employment rates than whites. So the, the, the idea is fairness in employment, not the assumption that diversity of ethnicity is the be all to end all in the way that we employ people. Um, and so, again, this this all goes back to power. This yeah. all goes back to, you know, political power, economic power, so on and so forth. And right now, um, I mean, you've got, you know, white people literally 
bowing their knees <laughs> um, <laughs> before black people, um, you know, begging for forgiveness. Um, you know, there are professors who have to be very careful about the critiques that they give of the papers that are turned in by black students, because if there's too much red ink, you'll be called a racist. Um, you know, dissertations that are being accepted based yeah. on this same thing right now. That's not um, really helping. You know, no. one of the things that's very, you know, which I've said before, and I, and, and I know you've heard me probably say it, is that, you know, when there is no grace, when there's no forgiveness, the oppressed, when they fight back, simply have no choice but to become the oppressor. They, yes. There's no in between. There's no forgiveness. There's no grace. There's no nothing. There's no atonement. There's all atonement, yeah, but no real salvation or redemption. Well, and that's why in the last chapter, um, that's the that's the note I end on, mm-hmm. um, on that note of, of forgiveness, that note that's absent in critical social justice and anti-racism, um, but that note that is ever present uh, in, in the gospel. And that's that's what I want to point to. Mm-hmm. I want to point to that forgiveness, not only that we have in Christ, but also that forgiveness that we are able to extend because of the forgiveness that we have in Christ. Well, that is, uh, the book is called, and this is an incredible, it's really a, a very critical book. I don't mean that, you know, in the critical <laughs> race theory, but it is a very important book. It's called Fault Lines, The Social Justice Movement and Evangelicalism's Looming Catastrophe. Um, and it, just quickly, the catastrophe. What is the catastrophe that's looming for even the evangelicals? Well, it's it's already happening. We're seeing the divide, right? We're seeing it divide families. We're seeing it divide churches. We're seeing it divide ministries and institutions and universities and seminaries. Um, and so critical social justice, critical race theory, this anti-racist movement, it, it can't stand. It's going to collapse. And when it does, there are going to be many people who are now aligned with God and God's people who find themselves standing in that rubble. And so my, my hope is not just to sound the alarm, but my hope is to show people where the divide is and to call them to the right side of it. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Vody Balkum, thank you so much for being on Lighthouse Faith Podcast. This has indeed been a very, very, um, very interesting conversation. Um, thank you so much. Absolutely. It's been my pleasure. And thank you so much for having me on. It's my pleasure, too. And thank you all for listening to Lighthouse Faith Podcast. I'm Lauren Green. Have a blessed day. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.